podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. us walk through life with a mistaken assumption that the circumstances in our lives will never significantly change. We somehow take for granted that misfortune and tragedy will only befall others. In some way, we feel insulated from loss and pain. Our time is consumed with activities that divert our attention from the need for deep thought and contemplation. We shut out things that are difficult to consider, especially those involving loss and change. Instead, we choose to focus on more external things. We may treat career as our ultimate master, deluding ourselves in a false view that this life will last forever. In this process, we fail to even consider the potential relevance of our current efforts a century down the road. Perhaps we have walked a similar path, you and I. Maybe we took things for granted, which were actually most important in our lives. Like the dwellers in Plato's allegorical cave, we focused on the shadows projected on the wall rather than the originating source. We either lost or ignored our connection. Loss is a significant force that can serve as a catalyst for change. It can bring about an awakening drawing out something sacred within us. As change unfolds, truths are often revealed that bring us back to our source, clearing away delusional thinking. I have personally experienced such a significant transformation. Simply put, life continues. In fact, everything continues. Life, death, what we are, what those we have lost are, Even if we do not see it, the whole of reality is continuing. Those who have suffered the loss of a loved one need not succumb to the pain and despair tied to the notion that the person has simply vanished from existence. Death is an opportunity as well as a loss. It can be the most terrifying and challenging of all opportunities, all responsibilities. The truth I have to share is that consciousness and personality survive physical death. My story is one of confirmation, even validation, and also one of unimaginable peace and hope. And best of all, it is true, says Mark Ireland. Valeria interviews Mark Ireland about his book, Soul Shift, Finding Where the Dead Go. Mark Ireland is co-founder of Helping Parents Heal and the author of two books, including the groundbreaking Soul Shift, Finding Where the Dead Go. His father, Richard Ireland, was a renowned 20th century psychic medium who counseled Mae West, Glenn Ford, Amanda Blake, and the Eisenhower family. Mark has participated in mediumship research studies conducted by the University of Arizona, and the University of Virginia, and he currently operates his own certification program. Mark's program objective is to identify high-caliber mediums capable of furnishing specific, accurate, and pertinent information. According to the Winbridge Research Center, highly evidential readings can provide a therapeutic benefit to grieving persons. Here is the interview with Mark Ireland. In your own words, who is Mark Ireland? 
Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I don't think a lot of us ask ourselves that to really define who we are and uh, what we're all about. But uh, I would say I'm somebody who's uh, transitioned from what I used to be about 15, 16 years ago to what I am now. Uh, I'm a person who cares about other folks and who has found a way to help those in grief and to maybe broaden their scope of understanding about the nature of the universe uh, from maybe something that was more uh, restricted to something a little more open and uh, inspire them to be a little more inquisitive about the world and the universe we live in. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, Soul Shift, Finding Where the Dead Go. So my first warm-up question is, what is life? Wow. Well, you can define life in different ways. I mean, most people define it biologically, but that precludes kind of the metaphysical uh, interpretation. So to me, consciousness is primary. If we are sentient beings with or without our bodies, do we have a soul, which I believe, not just believe, but I feel I have uh, evidence to validate or support that argument. I really look at life as two different things. The the part of us that is, you know, eternal, um, beyond bodily life and death. And then secondarily, biological life and life here in this physical world. So those are kind of my two views about it. Um, but for the time being, we're, we're kind of one thing. So I'm not being dualistic, I guess. I, I would say we're one thing, but the core of us, the part of us uh, beyond this physical body, and the brain that I would say um, controls how we think here in the in the physical world is a temporary state. In a philosophical way, what do you think is the opposite of life? Well, I mean that's a pretty broad question. I guess you could define it as though someone you know is physically alive and exists, and their body functions, but they don't really live. They do not experience life. They just kind of go through it, um, and maybe that's because either they're caught up. Uh, with problems, um, whether they're drug or alcohol addiction or grief or other psychological problems from maybe being abused or whatever, and not really being able to free themselves from that to live. Outside of that, I think consciousness persists after physical death, and that's you know something we can get into later in the interview. So I think you know, yeah, the opposite of life, you know, most people would think of that as death, and they would define that as physical death. Uh, for me, since I think kind of in a way beyond that, I would say to me, it's just not living or not living to your full potential. I like that a lot. And I agree. So you mentioned earlier consciousness. What is the mind or consciousness and what are thoughts? So, you know, this is a debate that's been going on in the scientific community for, for years. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. And really... I think the mainstream view, which has kind of been adopted almost as a religion within this academic community, is that the brain uh, manufactures consciousness. And, um, and if that's true, then we're just biological machines. And when the body dies, we die. And we're, uh, we're living in a deterministic world where we really don't have free will. We just think that we do. But I don't, I don't buy that. Um, consciousness from things I've read and studied and ex personal experiences seems to be beyond just physical manifestation of, of the brain. The brain clearly has a role in how we think and um, how we function, but I don't believe that it manufactures consciousness. I see consciousness as primary and perhaps outside the realm of what we would consider physical, yet um, interplays into the physical world through our experiences here in this world. I see the brain more as a filter or sifter, if you will, that kind of limits our scope from being totally expansive to more relegated to our localized experiences. And to me, that's intentional so that we can have experiences that help us grow. I'm not sure if you answer my other question about thoughts. Well, my father years ago, way before Wayne Dyer was around to write about this, said thoughts, thoughts are things. So if you put a thought out there, it's not just uh, some little insignificant thing. It's kind of, um, it's a pr precursor to things taking place. It can kind of set into motion change or action. 
So um, I, I guess I'd buy into the, the statement that thoughts are things. They are, I guess, the first step or first stage of anything becoming a, a reality or, um, or a, a tangible action. Yeah, I agree. It kind of resonates with me. Your book, the title mentioned the word soul. So I'd like to understand more about that. Uh, how is the soul different from the spirit? Well, first off, the title of the book is interesting because my publisher wanted something else that I didn't like. <laughs> they wanted to call it ghost souls. I thought, what? Uh, it sounded too macabre for me. And so I kind of meditated one day to try and see what I could come up with. And actually, it was when I woke from a deep sleep um, and it was maybe four in the morning one day, I got the word soul and then I got shift after that. And then I came back and they said, OK, that sounds good. But it really meant uh, the title meant two things to me. Soul shift would mean to me that there was a change that occurred with, within me that was really the catalyst to that was my youngest son's passing. But the other part was that his soul shifted from this dimension into the next one. So um, soul and spirit, I've heard a lot of different arguments about what it is, like uh, uh, soul might be a broader term, like a group of souls, not just one individual. Uh, like soul groups or spirit might just be an individual. So they're interrelated. I can't say that I know for sure. I use those terms interchangeably. And if I'm wrong, so be it. <laughs> you know, I think what I mean is um, whether it's soul or spirit, I'm talking about the non-physical part of us that is the eternal part that existed before we incarnated and will continue on afterward through a cycle of evolution that's you know, I guess akin to a biological evolution, but it's more for the soul to be refined, to grow in, in terms of learning how to love and to have more experiences. So again, those terms to me are interchangeable, but for some people, they may have other specific definitions beyond what I think. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense to me what you just said, this evolution of the metaphysical, the part that we don't see. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Wow, you ask hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think freedom could have a lot of different definitions to different people. For me, it's, um, I guess, first loving yourself so that you can love others and enjoy your life and experiences and value um, those relationships and to feel free to try new things, to grow, to learn, um, and to experience more. You know, if I lived in a country that controlled us more and didn't allow us freedom, I might have a different explanation of that. But to me, that's, I guess, the way I would look at it. I think there's a lot of folks that restrict themselves or they have hangups or problems that keep them from fully feeling free to experience things or, or fears, you know, uh, fear of trying something different or new or reaching out to people or to being vulnerable even um, to show, you know, their vulnerabilities with people, which really builds trust. What do you think is the world's greatest need at this time, Mark? Yeah, I would say to be kind to one another. Uh, to, and when I say love, I'm not speaking of romantic love. I'm just saying, you know, empathy for each other, for other folks, and to be supportive and to realize that we're all kind of one family. We're all uh, one thing. We're not a bunch of separate individualized components or pieces. And, you know, if we hurt someone else, we're really hurting ourselves. We just don't think that we are maybe. Um, so I would say at this time, we need to pull together and we need to continue to grow and evolve that way, as opposed to you know, being selfish, uh, shutting ourselves off from others and um, not being giving. Do you think that what's happening now will give us this opportunity to love more? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. It's a tough time. A lot of people are really stressed out or worried or scared. But if I look at where changes occur often, it's when a tragedy or a very difficult circumstance occurs, kind of forces us to hit the reset button or the universe pushes the reset button for us. We have to reevaluate what's most important and how to adapt and change and maybe to figure out a different way to live going forward. So, yeah, I, as bad as this is and as tragic as it is, um, maybe there'll be some good to come out of it. Yeah, I believe that too. I have two more warm-up questions for you. What, where, and who is God to you? Okay, so I think, you know, one of the hangups we have 
in the world and in terms of people fighting uh, over religious battles and things is just a human definition of God. Um, and so people want to argue like, oh, my definition is correct and here's the right way to believe, or my definition is correct, here's the right way to believe. I don't see God as a puppet master that's controlling our lives or, um, or, or that kind of parental figure in the sky, but rather um, indefinable from a human perspective, perhaps, but a source of the primordial source of consciousness and the evolution of the universe, both the physical and the non-physical and the spiritual. That is, um, and I think there's a small spark within each of us connecting to that source. I can't fully define God because I think it's beyond hum human comprehension to do so. But I think within each of us, we know that there's some connection there to something greater that was the primordial source of all that is. And I guess that's the closest thing I can say. Otherwise, it's a, I don't feel I need to define God. Um, I just need to feel that sense of love and desire that sense of connection. Yeah, so in the way you uh, actually said it, I was about to ask if you connect God to love, unconditional love, this profound love from what I see you do. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And that is the primary characteristic of God that I would attribute to God is that, is that unconditional love. And it's that unconditional love we need to learn to give to one another. It's, it's an extension of that. My last question, what do you think is the main purpose of your life? To um, fulfill the path that I came here to fulfill, which is to help my soul grow, evolve, and have experiences that I need to progress me to a point beyond where I am currently, to become more godlike, if you will, and to become closer to God. And then in that vein, I'm able to help others and bring the whole thing up, elevate everything. So if we all do that, we elevate consciousness on the whole, the collective consciousness. What a beautiful purpose to have and to be aware of. So let's talk about your work. What was the inspiration, intention, and the process of writing your book, Soul Shift, Finding Where the Dead Go? It's actually the first book I wrote, and I've written a second one, and then I published another one, too, that my father had written that uh, I was able to get released after he had passed, years after he had passed. But for Soul Shift, it really started for me to go back to the time frame when my youngest son, Brandon, passed in early 2004. Prior to that time, I guess I'd have to go back to my childhood to explain that I had a father with unusual abilities. Um, so he was a psychic medium and a minister back before this was really commonplace or popularized like it is today. Um, but he was tremendously gifted. I saw evidence from an early age um, that life continues beyond physical existence. Uh, the detailed specific information he was able to share with people in public settings or in his church that's beyond anything anyone could have known or researched really gave me a sense of confidence about that. So where a lot of people fear death or go through life, you know, having uh, concerns or worrying about their loved ones who have passed, I really didn't have it to the same degree. But I didn't become like my dad. You know, I'm, I guess say I've been a more left brain person going through life, a little more logical and analytical, but still with some balance to the right brain too. But so I went through college, got my degree, got married at a young age, ended up with two sons. And it was when my youngest son passed in 2004, January 10th, that it really pulled me back to explore this again. I um, obviously, no matter what you think or believe or, or know about the world beyond this one, when you lose a child, it's devastating. It's the hardest thing you can imagine, just that separation. And um, the one comfort I had was going back to thinking about the things I'd um, experienced from my childhood and my father. And um, ironically, really, there were a couple of experiences early on that helped me kind of get on the path to put this book together and to uh, and share my findings with people, which was both the journalistic effort, but also an experiential one, too, with some profound learnings and um, things that gave me great confidence that the things I'd seen as a child were in fact true. 
So that was the catalyst. Yeah. And um, your father, he said many things and he did so many things in that uh, field of you call mediumship which I didn't know that word before, having psychic abilities. You said something that I wrote here very much true from my perspective. There is no death and there are no dead. Yeah, that's an old saying that actually goes back in spiritualist tradition. So when he was young, he, he became a spiritualist minister. And later on, he ended up just having his own interdenominational church, as he called it, because he really didn't want to be bound to one specific dogmatic position or uh, dogma. He he wanted to be a broad and encompassing church or offer that to people of all faiths or even people with no faith and wanted to reach out to people um, who maybe were even atheistic or agnostics in public settings to see the abilities that he had, that it might open their minds and make them reconsider. So yeah, that is a saying that gave me comfort, and um, he used quite a bit. There is no death and there are no dead. And talk to me about psychic abilities in mediumship research studies. Okay, well, psychic phenomena um, has existed in humankind throughout the ages. Uh, the study of it formally, you know, was probably more prevalent starting in the late 1800s with the Society of Psychical Research based in London, England. And there were a lot of highly regarded scientists who did personal investigations of, of this phenomena. And then fast forward to the early 1900s, um, I think 1929 or thereabouts, or 1930, Dr. J.B. Ryan at the Duke University, at Duke University started a parapsychology laboratory where he did a lot of studies, primarily focused on telepathy. And that ran through the early 1970s. Um, and they compiled statistical results that really showed, hey, th this is real stuff. Um, this, you know, people can telepathically communicate. So psychic phenomena really is a group of different um, phenomena that include telepathy, which is mind-to-mind -mind transfer of information. There's uh, psychometry, which is, you know, reading energy from touching an object, clairvoyance, which is a little hard to define because it's basically clear seeing or knowing. Clear audience is clear hearing. So hearing in your mind, if you will, or potentially auditorily information that is beyond your, basically any psychic phenomena is saying you have the ability to perceive things beyond the five physical senses. And then a mediumship basically is the idea that a psychic person with certain level of ability can communicate with spirit or someone who is deceased loved one. And there's what I call evidential mediumship. And that is you're basically requiring that medium to provide evidential statements that can be validated under control conditions um, where they don't have prior knowledge of anything to do with the sitter. And the sitter is the person receiving a reading. And that through the course of that information and information that no one could know, that is the evidence that What's happening there is perhaps telepathy between a medium and a discarnate person. Um, so, and I've had a lot of evidence, you know, of that personally, but also I've tested and been testing these mediums for the last five years to validate their, or in some cases, invalidate their claims of their abilities. Right. And that becomes my next question about the uh, direct experiences that you uh, had that support this belief that there is life after death. Yeah, there's quite a few. So let me start with the first thing that happened after my son passed. So um, I wanted, uh, within a day or two, I wanted a direct connection. And I was feeling very sad, obviously. So I went into a darkened area. I think it was actually my closet. <laughs> Shut the door and tried to meditate. I'm not usually a great meditator, but in this case, I was able to quiet my mind. After a little while of breathing, relaxed breathing and concentration, um, an image of my son flashed in front of my, if my forehead was a screen, it scrolled across and he was smiling. But immediately after that was a symbol that I recognized, but I didn't know what it meant. And that symbol was a cross with an oval loop at the top. I'd seen those, but I didn't know what they were. So I went over to my computer afterwards and I Googled that and I found out that it's, a, it's the oldest cross of humanity. It's called an Ankh. It's, from, it's an Egyptian symbol. And the lower 
portion of it, the, the cross means physical life, and the oval loop at the top represents eternal life. So what I received there was something that was a symbolic way of telling me my son was happy and he was experiencing eternal life. And the reason it meant so much to me is because I didn't know what it meant till I researched it. And I think that's why it was given to me. Then a few days after Brandon had passed, my uncle, who now at this time, my father had already been gone for a few years, a number of years, but my uncle was still alive and he was my dad's brother and he had similar abilities. He had called me or I called him, I don't remember which, in the mortuary uh, three days afterwards, something like that. And um, I had already asked him if he could get anything or any information about Brandon, I would really appreciate it. And he told me, he said, Mark, um, I tried to meditate last night, but I didn't get anything. But when I got up this morning, I was in my meditation. Your father came to me and he wanted you to know that he was there when Brandon transitioned and he helped him adjust. And he said, you know, Brandon wanted you to know that you're the best parents he ever could have had. Now, all that sounds great. And we like to hear that. But along with that, he gave me the cause of death, which had not been determined yet. He said, your dad tells me that Brandon's death was caused by a lack of oxygen that caused um, his blood oxygen levels to drop and for his heart to fail. Uh, a couple days after that, I talked to the autopsy physician and she confirmed, she said that Brandon had suffered a severe asthma attack that dropped his blood oxygen levels and caused cardiac arrest. So I got evidence along with that to validate what my uncle shared with me. And those were two of the earliest validations. Right. Would you say that for you, are they the most validating too, evidence? There are so many beyond that that are very validating. I'd say the strongest one really happened six months after. Uh, it involved my wife. So um, we had planned, Brandon was a senior in high school. And so he was entering his final semester of his senior year. And to celebrate his graduation, we were going to go on a week-long Caribbean cruise. But when Brandon passed, we still decided to go on the cruise, but we took our older son, Stephen, and we took Brandon's best friend, uh, a boy named Stu, Stuart. And um, so we went on this cruise, and the day we returned home, uh, we got into the house, and my wife sat at the foot of our bed. Now, Stephen and I were elsewhere in the house, but while Susie was sitting there at the foot of our bed, she felt a, a presence with her, and out of her peripheral vision, she saw a shadow figure standing next to her same height as Brandon would be, and she knew it was him. But what's really confirming about this is the very next day we got a call from another friend named James Linton. Now, James had actually been someone who was hiking on the mountain the same day Brandon had passed from this asthma attack. And when he got to the scene, he tried to help, but he was too late. So by this point, six months later, we gotten to know James, and he was a musician, and he had his own recording studio. And Brandon was a bass player. James needed to have a bass to finish a song or some songs he was working on in his studio. So we had loaned this bass to him before we'd left on uh, the cruise. So here it is one day after Susie's experience, we just got back and James calls Susie and he says, uh, Susie, I've got something to tell you, but I don't know how to, to share this with you. And she says, well, it's okay. Just tell me. And he says, well, I was in recording this song I felt another presence in the room with me and I saw a shadow figure out of my peripheral vision and I saw flashes of white light and I thought I was going crazy. So I went and got water and I ate food. I took a shower, but each time I came back, it got stronger and stronger. Then he noted that it, he was guided to rewrite this song, both the lyrics and the baseline in this song. Um, and then at the end of it, he says, uh, this is the best song I've ever written, but, but I didn't write it. And uh, it is a wonderful song called On the Other Side. Um, but I think for a skeptic listening to this, you'd have to say the odds are pretty long of my wife having this experience and our friend not knowing anything about this, calling, reporting the exact same experience the next day. Right. And I agree. I guess the other question that comes to mind is that does these evidences give you comfort? Like, did they change uh, the level of the pain? Completely, Yeah. One of the things I've done in the last 10 years um, or so have co-founded an organization for bereaved parents called Helping Parents Heal. And through that, I, you know, I kind of personally identified what I call the five pillars of healing. The first one is to have support from family and friends, and hopefully you have that because it can make a big difference. Not everyone has that. The second one is to have 
support from or to get to know people who have been through the same thing so you have someone to relate to who who's had the same set of experiences as you that's very healing and that's where the group comes in too because they have group meetings and so forth the third is to provide service to others now you may not be able to do that immediately but at some point if you're able to either donate your time or do something to help others in a positive way that actually comes back to help you too and make you feel better the fourth pillar is to forgive and let go of guilt um, a lot of people will say, I should have done this, or I should have done that, or I could have prevented it, or they did this because of me. And those things just are not true, but we, we like to blame ourselves. Or someone may have been responsible for the passing of their child through an auto accident or some other careless act. And so they're harboring this anger. And I'm not saying it's easy to let go of that, but if you can forgive that person, it heals you. And then finally, the fifth pillar is for someone to have hope. And that hope comes from understanding the evidence that there is more than physical life, that the soul goes on and their child still exists. They're not gone, they're just different. <laughs> you know, They don't have a body any longer, but this evidence does help a lot. And that's where the mediums come in too, because even though we've had these great experiences of what I would call direct connections, um, some people are too fragile or too emotional and they can't pick up on those subtleties for those things to happen and then recognize them. Um, they'll just think that they were imagining something or, or they won't notice. Um, and so that's where, you know, having a sitting with a good reading, um, good reading with a good medium can help somebody over the hump, definitely. Yes. And that brings me to a question about mediums and readings. How do we find the ones that are perhaps I don't know what you call them, more experienced or reliable or credible? Yeah, those are all good terms. I do. So, you know, as I went through this, I actually met a lot of top mediums from around the world, like Alison Dubois, Suzanne Wilson, Suzanne Giesman, Linda Williamson in England, and, um, and others, and John Holland, Maureen Hancock. But these are big name people, and they tend to have long wait lists or, or become so busy, they don't even do individual readings any longer. They'll just do maybe a group meeting or things like that. So I got understanding what the best people are liking, what they're capable of. But I knew that a lot of people were coming to me after my books came out asking for recommendations. And so I needed to find people who were affordable, credible, and had availability. And so that's why I started this testing program five years ago to certify people. The website for that, well, actually, I'm just going to direct people to my website because there's links to all these other websites there. And my website is markirelandauthor.com. That's Mark with a K, Ireland like the country, author, markirelandauthor.com. On there, you'll find a link to the Certified Mediums website. You'll also find a link to some videos of my father's demonstrations back around 1970, and then also a link to the Helping Parents Seal site. So all of those links are there on my site. Just to explain to people how these mediums get certified, I put them through a process of five test readings that are usually conducted over Zoom or Skype. And they have to read for someone they don't know. And the minute that they sign on is the first time they're introduced to the person. And all that is shared is the first name of the individual. Then they have to provide a reading, which is recorded and then later transcribed. The sitter then grades it for accuracy, noting that each statement's either correct, incorrect, or indeterminable. Um, and then the sitter can also decide if something deserves bonus points. So as an example, if, if the medium said, I think you have a son that passed, I think that son's name was Eric, and that he liked pepperoni and anchovy pizza, that was his favorite dish, well, then the sitter could say, yes, I did have a son pass, that's correct. Yes, his name is Eric, and I'll give you bonus points for that because that's outstanding. And then, no, incorrect. His favorite food was pizza, but it was pepperoni and olive, not anchovy. So I have to say that's incorrect. So through the course of that methodology, the readings are graded and statistically measured. So it takes a minimum 70 points for someone to pass. And the points are given first as a percentage. So you'd have to be a minimum 60% accurate. That's excluding the indeterminable statements. And an indeterminable statement is just something that they, they can't answer. They don't know if it's right or wrong. There's no way for the sitter to determine that. And then each bonus point, uh, bonus gets five points. 
So you have to have at least 70 total points. So they'd either have to be 70% accurate with no bonus points or at least 60% accurate with bonus points. And what I can say is that the top five people that I've done this with have come out uh, grading above 85% accuracy uh, with about four to five bonus points per reading. And then the average overall is more like um, I'd have to check, but I think like 75% to 80%, 75% accurate with about two to two and a half bonus statements per reading. And that that's the methodology I've used. It's not perfect. And even those people that are, that are good, they're going to have an off day now or then. It's not a, an exact science in terms of how it works. Um, sometimes it's just an energetic connection that's better sometimes than others. Um, so um, that's just something that I put on there as a kind of a disclaimer. I can't promise you're going to get a good reading, but I've tried to improve the odds by going through this process so people have names they can go to and have a level of trust with. Yeah, I love that you're doing that, Mark. I'm sure that a lot of people, they'll be interested in doing that. If I had lost someone close to me, I would be. I just hope that I would be interested for the right reasons. Well, and along with that, I don't encourage people to do this very often because it can become addictive. So, you know, you know, no more than once every six months and preferably they learn how to meditate and or connect through a dream state when they're going to bed at night so they can have a direct connection. But the, the thing, the difference there is that you have to realize people are always going to second guess whatever they get on their own. They're going to question themselves like, hey, I saw my son last night in a dream and it seemed really real, but do you think that's, did that really happen or is just that my imagination or was it just a dream? And that's, you know, that's where a medium gives you kind of that independent uh, subject or objective uh, information approach that you can't necessarily have yourself. But I think the direct connection, if you learn to trust it and have it, can be a wonderful tool for people. Wow, I love that. So do you think that all of us can develop these psychic abilities or become a medium ourselves? Well, so my father contended, and I would contend that everybody has some degree of psychic ability, but I think it varies. It's just like any other skill. It's like, uh, could you learn to play guitar? Well, sure you could. But are you going to be, you know, like the best guitar player in the world? Maybe not. True. (laughs) So like in the case of my father, I think he was born with this innate ability, but he also put a lot of effort into his development to advance it to a higher level. Like in the basketball world, going back to Michael Jordan's era, he was probably one of the hardest working players, but he had this innate ability as well. When you combine those factors, it makes somebody better. So I don't know that everyone needs to be a a medium who reads for other people, but I think you can, everyone has intuition and you can use that for your own benefit for both for guidance in your life in terms of, you know, don't ignore the gut feeling you get about something or someone, Uh, uh, listen to that, pay attention. Or if you're trying to make a decision, if you get a gut reaction, more often than not, that that's going to be right. I found when I try and overanalyze and go with the analytical answer instead of the gut feel, I'm often wrong. So I've learned to trust that more. But some people will have that aptitude. Um, and I think most people can connect with their, their loved one who's passed in a way. Um, and they're, you know, some of the mediums I mentioned earlier put on their websites ways to train yourself to do that. I think two in particular, Suzanne Wilson, that's S-U-S-A-N-N-E, Wilson. Um, and then uh, I know Maureen Hancock is wonderful too. She's based out of Boston. She also has things on her website about how to learn how to do this on your own. It's usually through a meditative process. Yeah, that's interesting. It goes back to quieting the mind, Yeah, becoming silent. Did you have any intuition, any thoughts before your son's passing? Interestingly, I did. I had a very strong one that morning. So um, I had been traveling the week prior. I got home on a Friday night and I Instead, when I walked in the front door, I went straight to my son's room for some reason. I was just drawn to go there. I opened the door and he was laying in bed watching TV. And um, usually on a Friday night, he would have been out with friends. So I was surprised to see him there, but really happy. And I didn't even say a word. I just leaned over and gave him a hug. And But it was the next day uh, we had gotten together. I played guitar and he played bass and we were jamming to a few songs, practicing. And then... Um, After that, he started packing a lunch and he told me about his plans to go on this hike up the mountains behind our home in Arizona. And um, shortly after that, I got a really bad feeling in the pit of my stomach um, and I sat down at my computer. And while I was there, I I almost felt like there was a presence with me, 
And I didn't hear anything verbally. It was just a feeling that this hike could be a problem. It could potentially take Brandon's life. And I just thought, oh, I'm just being a worrying parent. Um, but sure enough, you know, later that day we were across town and we received a phone call from our older son, Stephen. He told me that Brandon had been on this hike. The other boys on the hike with him were trying to call emergency services to get a helicopter up there to help Brandon. But their connection was intermittent. It was, it was cutting out, so they needed someone to call. So I called the authorities and asked them to send the helicopter. And then we drove home. But by the time we got there, it was too late. We saw probably 100 people standing around, a big fire truck, an ambulance, and the helicopter brought uh, Brandon's body down. Now, we didn't know immediately what had happened, but I didn't feel very optimistic. Uh, we had told the first police officer that we saw that who we were, and he introduced us to a chaplain. And once that happened, I thought, oh, no, that's not good. Then it was dragging on. This chaplain wasn't saying much, and I just flat out asked him. I said, did my son pass? And he said, yes, I'm sorry, he did. And uh, that was the toughest moment of my life. Yeah, and I can hear in your voice. Yeah, I, I talk to a lot of people about it, and I have people around me who have lost my own husband, lost a lot of people. And I hear that in their voices, and, and they cry often. I'm just wondering if this understanding that there's no death, that we never die, if we can get that deep enough, that can become a knowing somehow, uh, inner wisdom. Like in your case, you have created a different life inspired by love because of this experience. So I'm wondering if, if more people can do that and can transform a loss, a painful loss, into something incredibly positive and meaningful. Yes, absolutely. My, my father used to say, many of you believe, but I know. <laughs> you yeah, know, loved about him. <laughs> and so um, it's true. <laughs> I think it's part of being a human to always have some little worry or doubt in the back of your mind, no matter how much you know or believe. But you can get to that point. And even though I kind of choked up a little saying that, it's only because I reflected on that moment, that first moment, um, because I, we really healed very quickly compared to most people that go through something like that. And I would say within you know weeks, we were functioning pretty well, and within a month or two, we were, you know, you know, 80% back. Um, and, and at this point, I mean, it's been many years, but I, I think at the end of a year, we were, we were highly functioning people. And I think that was a big, big part of it. It's a, it's a change in your worldview, or for many people it is, to consider, like, just think of the big picture, not just this, this one incident, but like, look, we're all only here for a short period of time. There's a bigger picture. We're, we're going to die. All of us are going to die physically. And uh, it's just a question of when and in what order. And we don't control the order necessarily. Like we, we think that a child should outlive the parent um, because that's kind of the natural uh, shape of things or how it typically goes, but it doesn't always go that way. And if you could take a step back, and like I talked about before, if you think about yourself as a soul that existed before you came into this incarnation and will continue afterward, and this is just kind of a school or a stepping stone, um, then it can help you. Uh, and then it's kind of the evidence kind of part that I was sharing earlier that helps you believe that to be true and not just hope that it's true. Yes, right. And also makes me think about the way you defined uh, life itself in the beginning of our conversation and you connected love to God, which I capitalize love because I believe in unconditional love for everything, ourselves, life itself, and others. So in that way, with that understanding, it's sort of not easier, but it, it's possible to just accept and embrace, right, Mark? It's totally possible. And what I would tell you is I've seen parents who have been 10 years into this who are still at the same place. Um, but I would say the majority of the parents who have come through our Helping Parents Heal organization, I've seen tremendous healing in most of them. I don't know if I'd say it's 90%, but it's a very high figure to see the transition they make from day one of having have it going through this tragic kind of event to where they are now, or even after you know, six months, a year, couple of years, they can live a joyful life again, a productive life. And I encourage people to recognize they're here for a reason. It's not a random thing. We're not in a universe of chaos, even though some people will say that. There's a 
purpose and path, and they have one, and they need to fulfill that, even though they've had to suffer, they need to turn that suffering into a catalyst that helps them move forward to be a positive force in the world. And if they can do that, they will have a very fulfilling and joyful life, and they will you know, reconnect in a deeper way with their child or their loved one after they die. But they can have a sense of connection too now that can help sustain them. Right. And you know what I thought about what do you do with the Helping Parents Heal, the program you have, if this can be also applied to, to those who still live? In a way, I don't know if it's possible, but to prepare us for loss. Do you think it's possible that we can prepare to lose people we love? Um, yeah, and I can see your point here too, like, because um, everybody's going to lose somebody. So that's, I think, why beyond just that organizations is dealing with people who have suffered the passing of a loved one. That's why I write my books and I do talks and I've had interviews and been on TV and radio because I want to get the word out so that people may be interested, just like my father did. You know, uh, you might open someone's mind and then you find out after they read your book or they learn more that's like, you know what, I've had a lifelong fear of death. And thank you, because you helped me overcome that. So I've had people tell me that. It just shocked me. Like, wow, I never knew that about you, but it was like a hidden secret. Like, this person had a horrible fear of death, but after reading my first book, they're like, I don't fear death anymore. And so there's a lot of value in that, too. And then people's scope of thinking may broaden as well. Yeah. And this is where I believe healing really starts, by losing that fear, because this is going to happen. Yeah, they, people could spend all their energy just focused on fear right. of what might happen. Um, and it's, it's almost like they're bringing it to be. <laughs> and, um, whereas, you know, if they just let go of that and live their life fully and without fear, they can do so much more and be so much happier in that life. So we don't have anything to regret in the end, right? Uh, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions? I think, you know, we live in a, a materialistic world with a materialistic mindset and it's been not helpful to the human psyche or to our confidence of what's most or understanding of what's most important going forward. I contend that each of us has a purpose for being here and that it's important for us to, to fill that if we go inside and are introspective, we'll, we'll find that path. And you'll know that you're on it when things go well and go right. Um, and if you encounter hurdles or bumps along the way, you might think, okay, I'm a little bit off the path here. But follow your heart, find your path, and fulfill it. Um, keep, keeping in mind that if you approach things from the perspective of, of love and unconditional love, as you say, you know, things I think go, tend to go better for you. I also think being an optimist helps you in life. If you're a pessimist and you always look at the glass as half full, you tend to have more obstacles, at least the people I've known that, that take that approach. But if you take an optimistic and expecting the best, often the best will happen. So I have my final questions here. Um, what is another word for healing? Wow. Um, how about restoration? If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently from today? forward? Not really. Um, I, I've even thought about that with this virus going around. Like, I'm not worried about it at all. I, I don't fear that. And if, if it was my time, so be it. I think what I would try and do is speed up the work I'm doing so I can get the rest of it out before I'm gone. Because <laughs> uh, I'm working on another book and some other materials. And, and again, trying part of that's uh, carrying on my dad's legacy and sharing the information he had to share and the, the knowledge he had to share. But outside of that, I can't, I don't think that I would make any huge changes or I wouldn't have any desire to go skydiving tomorrow or something like that either. Right. I hear that you live in the life you're supposed to be living, like your, your purpose. Yeah, I love listening to that answer from my guests. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that that's how I feel. Yeah, it's beautiful. And my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? Wow, three things. We got the lists here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, if you can be of service to others, um, that will help you uh, in relationships. If you can give more than you take or think about giving first and taking second, you'll have better relationships and listening to people. 
and then coming from a place of love first. So whether that, I think it's just, you know, when I say love, it could just be as simple as, you know, if you meet somebody or maybe you don't even get along or care for them that much, but you think about where are they coming from? What are their circumstances? And then trying to put yourself in their shoes so you can empathize with them. That's what I'm talking about. Granted, you're going to have better relationships with some people than others because you're going to be drawn to them or have more in common with them. But it's really when you get to the point of like, hey, the people that that maybe you have a harder time with, can you love them, at least have empathy for them and understand a little bit and then see from their perspective maybe why they are the way they are, whether they're negative or bitter or angry. You think, okay, well, maybe they had a really tough life. Maybe they were abused as a child and you find these things out you can kind of let it go and not worry. So really that comes down to not judging people, I guess, too. It's not judging, but also having empathy. Mm, which is part of love, right? The yeah. Non-judgmental state of mind, right? Right. It has been a meaningful healing conversation, Mark. Thank you so much for your presence and your wisdom. Thank you for being genuine, too. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Yeah, thank you. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? It's all at my website, markirelandauthor.com. And it's M-A-R-K-I-R-E-L-A-N-D, author.com, markirelandauthor.com. Got on that site, you know, my books are there. There's three books. I've got video clips, um, other interviews, and articles and things like that. So there's a lot there. And then links to the other things that might be of interest to your listeners as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Mark. And we'll talk soon. Sure thing. Bye for now. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Mark Ireland, please visit his website, markirelandauthor.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.